Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thanks for joining us this week. We're so happy you did. Jasmine's guest is Jennifer Stojkovich, who is the founder of the incredibly successful Vegan Women's Summit, which is dedicated to empowering, educating, and inspiring women to bring compassion to their careers and to bringing together her two passions, tech and food, to change the world. Yeah, this was a super cool conversation. I'm a big fan of Jenny. I know, I think um, you're kind of in awe. Well, she, okay, first of all, she blew my mind. But second of all, if you're in the flock, you have to, have to, have to listen to the bonus content this week because I I continue my conversation with Jenny. And as often happens, like, I don't know if it's because we've already kind of, uh, you know, oiled the machine or what, but... The bonus content is frequently just super spectacular, and this is no exception. So as always, if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, then please join us for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you're a Flock member, please join us also for our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern, that's 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, if you're international, <laughs> as so many of our of our flock members are. And whether we have a guest or just have a chat amongst ourselves, we talk about things like being how to how to be good activists and how to take care of ourselves and we complain and we kvetch and and we and whine we sometimes and, and celebrate. Uh, celebrate, right? That's the other thing. I was yeah. focusing on the whining. I was so if you're a member of the flock Check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Yes. So I wanted to briefly mention that uh, I sort of accidentally started a new newsletter. And so if people want to <laughs> they want to subscribe, I am having fun with it. And you can find it at jasminesinger.substack.com. And there's no E on Jasmine. So it's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot substack.com we'll include a link to it in the show notes and it's called jasmine's jargon and i started it because uh, i wear a lot of hats in the vegan and activist world for example the executive director and co-founder co-host with you of the our hen house podcast of course and the VP of editorial over at Kinder Beauty. I'm an editor at Veg News, author of a couple books, including the new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. And I also am on the board of the Newark LGBTQ Center. Uh, and I'm working with Encompass on an upcoming anthology that's coming out. How did we get into your bio here? So all of these things are related, but they're sort of truncated in the sense that or, or they're sort of uh, scattered, I should say, in the sense that like they all exist on their own little islands. And I started this newsletter to talk about how I manage my my time around them and also how they all sort of merge together and dance together in my mind, as well as like some, some call-outs, exciting things that I'm super jazzed about, like with our hen house. And, and so I hope that you subscribe. You can subscribe for free at jasminesinger.substack.com. And Marianne, you subscribe. So I am a subscriber. And now I'm worried that we're going to get an email from that person who thinks I'm mean to you because I said we got into your bio. So I'm going to say really nice things, but I really oh do meet them. It, it mean them. It, 
it's really good. The, the newsletter, Jasmine's a great writer. <laughs> and um, sometimes they're too long yeah, and wow. I can't finish them because I don't have the time. But other than that, they're really, really good. But, and I have you. lots of really useful information in them so far. I don't know when you're going to run out of useful information, but so far we're good. Marianne, if you read them in full, you would be better at your time management and you would have more time to read them. I'm just saying. Yeah, well, if I read them in full, I would not get done anything that that I have to get done. And, and that's not good time management either. That's true. Well, speaking of time management, uh, we are fully vaccinated. Knock on wood. I don't know why I'm knocking on wood. But I don't know, I'm not on- fully vaccinated in, until a couple of days from now. OK, well, we both got both of our shots. We are in that time period where you have to be careful before you go out in public. I read somebody the other day that after you're vaccinated, you should act exactly the same as before you're vaccinated. And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought I would get to get my hair cut. Do I not get to get my hair cut? No, you can get your hair cut. In fact, you, you know, we have well, I have a haircut appointment that I, I made a while back, which I'm so excited about. It's my it's going to be my first time going in anywhere. But this weekend, we are heading up to upstate New York to the Finger Lakes area because we are looking at exploring these net zero communities. Because as I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, we're very intrigued by net zero living and being off the grid. And we're interested in being climate refugees to some extent. So we found a a solar community in Geneva and an eco community in Ithaca, not eco village, though that place is really cool in a lot of ways, too. So it does sort of bring up some questions uh, because, you know, ideally, I think in both, if I can speak for both of us, we would ideally both really want to live as eco-friendly as possible, as off the grid as possible. So we'll keep you posted. However, some of these communities do have chickens and that has been sort of a thorn in the side of looking at these communities. Well, two of the communities we're looking at aren't really formed yet. They're in process. So it's not clear that they're going to have chickens, but I think there's kind of kind of an assumption that they will have chickens because chickens is kind of like along the lines of how most of these like eco type people think mm-hmm. of having your own chickens. And, you know, of course, as always, as vegans, we're just not on the same page. Right. And, but there is one of them that's talking, you know, they're they're naive. I mean, all of the people we've spoken to are naive. They don't understand that chickens don't lay eggs for their whole lives that there are, uh, you know, you have to decide whether you're going to support them for their for their lives or whether you're going to send them to slaughter. Like these decisions have to be made. You have to worry about where you're getting your chickens and, and whether you're supporting a hatchery, a cruel hatchery. Like they don't know any of this. They just think it's cute to have chickens and and get, get eggs. And so, you know, it's just one more thing that we're just going to have to explore, take step by step and then make decisions about what we're willing to to tolerate. I mean, you know, other people, they're communities, but they're not really like every, they're not communes. They're just, you know, you own your own property and the houses are just close together and, and they might have a few, uh, you know, like HOA uh, amenities, like a, a, a pool that everybody owns or a garden that everybody has a little garden in. And so I have to think about Am I responsible if these if somebody in this community keeps chickens? Am I responsible or is it just like living anywhere? If the guy, person across the street from me has chickens, what am I going to do? I mean, you have to live somewhere, right? Being a vegan is so fucking exhausting. 
<laughs> well, okay. It's also, it's also great because we pre- were presented with these opportunities that we get to like talk to people about this stuff. Though, yeah, of course, I wish we lived in a vegan world where we don't have to constantly be putting our necks out and being like, oh, here we go. Okay. But, it's you know, the chickens who end up putting their necks out, so to speak. That's true. That is true. That's ex- well, probably well, where that expression comes from. I am excited about this weekend and uh, we will, you know, it is advocacy because we're the four total because we, um, you know, also have uh, more. And then a friend of ours who's also looking so four vegans looking total. Maybe that's great. Like four vegans are 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 showing interest in in buying into these communities. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hope to have an influence. I do. Right. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, being net zero is really important to me. Net zero and off the grid are not necessarily, they can go together, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Net zero is just like you're, you're producing as much energy as you're using, uh, primarily through solar panels and by cutting your usage by having great insulation and all of those things. Mm-hmm. But you might still be on the grid because you might be feeding that solar energy back into the grid and then taking from the grid. That's one mm-hmm. way to do it. If, if you're going to go off grid, that means that you're actually producing all of your... Um, well, it doesn't actually mean that. You can be off grid and still be you know, getting propane and bringing it in and you're not on the grid, So, but you're not net zero. So, you know, the way they... The way they go together is not always entirely clear. I'm looking to be net zero, but I'm scared enough of what could happen in the future to like the idea of being capable of going off grid if things, you know, collapse for a while or who knows. But I will get into really dark scenarios. I watched a lecture today on climate change. I'm a little freaked out. But I also wonder how much, you know, it's just like with veganism, how much energy and thought should we be putting into our individual lives as opposed to being putting into political action and trying to change the, the, the overall way the world works. And does individual action such as veganism or going net zero on a different issue, but related issue, do they, does it matter? And I guess I come down the same way, but it's a constant thought process of how much energy do I put into it? I think it's important to align your personal values with what you think is the right way to live. But you have to go beyond that and you have to be trying to change the world at the same time and maybe using your net zero status as a model or trying to and encouraging other people to to think about the energy that they're using. So, so yeah, life is exhausting. (laughs) What gives you energy these days? You're exhausted. Not to like not to put you on the spot. Yeah, I know exactly how to answer that. All of a sudden it's spring. It sure is. It has been winter for so long. We had the coldest, snowiest winter, which I know seems surprising in this in this age. But you know, weather hasn't changed up here, I, and it was a cold. I, it's been so long since I've seen green on the ground as opposed to white, and all of a sudden, it's. I mean, it's shocking. Like it's all of a sudden, it's in the seventies and and beautiful, and you can see the trees budding. And boy, that gives me a lot of energy. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I I didn't even realize how much I missed it until like this last week where you are seeing the buds. And honestly, that's something that I really enjoyed about moving from LA where I moved last year back to New York because I, I did miss those those seasons, those like those giant indicators that it is time to sh- shift in some way. I like the cues from Mother Nature that, you know, things are going to move and I can too. So I am loving that. I love the two transition seasons, the 
like spring and fall. I mean, everybody loves the fall. Like, I think every, fall is just about everybody's favorite season. But there's a little bit of a, you know, things are dying, sort of not dying permanently. <laughs> so I guess this is not dying, but, you know, the leaves are falling. And spring, it it's muddy and it's it's wet. Mm-hmm. And it still isn't that beautiful. I mean, except in that wintry kind of beautiful way where the trees are bare. But you see the life coming and there's something so moving about it. Mm-hmm, totally. So I love both spring and fall. They're my favorites. I love them too. I also love this interview because she is talking a lot about the transitions that we have within animal rights and within vegan, within veganism. And so I would love to transition and sort of have a s- spring to a spring forward to Jenny. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> that was so terrible weak. Experience. So yeah. weak. I know. All right. But the person who gets mad at me for being mean to Jasmine, please don't write to us about it. Oh my that. God, Marianne, you're being unfair. <laughs> so many people have gotten mad at you for being mean to me, not just one person. Stop oh. bullying the one person. There's a lot of. I, I just looked at my evaluations for my class for last year, and one of the students, I, I always have one student who hates me. And the rest were good. The re- I, I just want to say the rest were, were good. Some of them were very good. But there's always at least one who hates me. And, and that person said that I should be kinder. <laughs> I think of myself as being so kind. I but I guess kind. other people don't really share that opinion all the time. You are anyway, kind. You're just not I try. Kind to me, but you're kind to everyone else. <laughs> I would be kind to Jennifer Stoikovich if I was interviewing her. But you got to interview her. And I'm very envious of you. Because she has had an incredibly successful career as an internationally recognized community relations leader for the world's largest tech companies. But as an ethical vegan, she started to become increasingly interested in blending her passion for change in the food system with her experience in networking in Silicon Valley. And she also became aware of the inequities facing female founders in the food tech industry. So she launched the Vegan Women's Summit in early 2020 with a sold out global conference focused on building equitable and diverse representation of women leaders from around the world and partnering with major tech brands. VWS features programming with the world's leading vegan CEOs, celebrities, investors, Olympians, and more, and is the world's first events and media organization dedicated to empowering, educating, and inspiring women to bring compassion to their careers. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and, well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold, or go to jasminesinger.com fabulous. 
Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R.com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Welcome to our hen house, Jenny. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm so excited about chatting with you. By the way, where are you? Where in the world are you? I am hunkered down in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Because there was something that happened with daylight savings where you didn't change. And then all of us at our hen house, we were like, is she in Arizona? Like we, we were trying to think of like areas that don't change. By the way, daylight savings is the stupidest thing that exists in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. So as it turns out, parts of of Mexico do not do daylight savings. And it's by state, you know, similar to in the United States. And so I did not realize that and very quickly had to adjust all of my calendars because I had everything on Eastern, assuming that Eastern is Eastern. That's so funny. Honestly, and I I just said that daylight savings is the stupidest thing ever, but I guess animal agriculture is the stupidest thing ever, which brings us to why you're, (laughs) but there's a few other stupid things, but that's on the list, which brings us to why you're here today. Cause I am such a big fan of what you've been doing with the vegan women's summit. And, you know, when I first met you, I was like, who is this woman? Because you had, you have such a giant energy and like you were putting together this huge feat and I always am skeptical. Like that's just how I approach everything in life. And I was truly blown away by it. So congratulations. And for any of our listeners, can you tell us what the Vegan Women's Summit is? Yeah, absolutely. So Vegan Women's Summit, or as most folks know us, VWS, is a global media and events platform created specifically to empower women to build a kinder, more sustainable world. So what does that mean? So we kicked off at the beginning of 2020 in person, if you can believe it. We actually did an in-person conference um, in San Francisco, California, where hundreds of women from all across the world flew in. We had CEOs, investors, celebrities, athletes, you name it, and really wanted to create this big tent community so that women really had a place that they could go to learn how to be more compassionate change makers, to learn how to bring that kind of advocacy to their careers and their industries. There really wasn't any sort of community, specifically in the professional space, for women that were looking to do that with their careers. So after we did the big flagship summit, which sold out, by the way, in about a week and a half, as you can imagine, we pivoted to virtual and have been growing this massive, massive community of women all across the world. We have, at this point, we've got women that joined from six continents. So I'm still waiting for a vegan in Antarctica to to raise her hand and join (laughs) the community. But we have grown substantially. Uh, A few of our other projects that we've been working on this past year as well include, we did the Women Founder Survey over the summer. So we conducted the world's first uh, founder survey, speaking specifically to women building the post-animal economy. So women working in food tech, plant-based innovation, cell-based innovation, and asked them, what is your experience being a woman in the space? As you can imagine, 
we collected some pretty crazy data to reach out to 163 CEOs and founders across six continents and and really learn about those barriers that they're facing, especially when it comes to fundraising, especially when it comes to those investor meetings, biases, discrimination, primary caregiver burden. That was a huge one that we that we looked at um, because about half of all the founders that we speak to are mothers, of course. All those types of barriers that face women, we collected that data and published the first ever report. You can find it on veganwomensummit.com. And when we published that report, we launched VWS Pathfinder, um, which was the Women Founders Summit and pitch competition that we hosted in December. Uh, So Jasmine, you were there and it was just crazy how many women we reached. We had over 800 women apply from 31 countries for our pitch competition alone. That's amazing. It's going fast, really fast. Yeah, it it was truly remarkable to just hear all of these global voices who are all fighting for the same, you know, the same thing, which is what we do at our hen house to change the world for animals. But the women who uh, you were reaching and who you were engaging are doing it in a variety of ways, from beauty to food and, and a whole lot of other areas. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of the focuses were for the uh, speakers at the at the summit? Yeah, absolutely. So we really want to take a holistic approach to how do we remove animals from the supply chain? And of course, up until now, that's that's really been around food. A lot of people are just talking about we need to create plant-based products for people to eat, you know, consumer packaged goods. And so, of course, that was a big focus at the summit. But we also branched out to include other areas where there's a lot of amazing things going on. So the future of, of food, fashion, There's a ton of sustainable um, textiles and really exciting things going on there. Um, I think we're going to be seeing the year of vegan leather coming very soon. If it's not this year, it will be next year. There's a huge opportunity in that space alone. We also covered the future of clean beauty, as you know, and you participated. Uh, There's so much opportunity for creating clean beauty solutions, especially with so many of the new women of color that are founding beauty companies. Veganism is becoming the the default for beauty. And it's moving a lot faster, actually, than food. And fashion actually has some opportunities to move faster than food. So that's really exciting. And then, of course, the last piece that we cover is biotechnology, science, cell-based innovation. There's a lot of other ways that you can bring animal-free solutions to the market through science and technology. So things like cell-based collagen, cell-based gelatin, all those types of animal byproducts that are in so many consumer products on a daily basis that we don't quite think about because they're byproducts and and their ingredients, not really the package. They're not going to say it on the package that they contain animals. So those are the types of solutions that we're really trying to bring forth. And there's women doing amazing things in every continent. We had women from Chile. We had women from India. We had women that joined from all across Africa. And to just to, to really set the stage to show people it's a global movement. It's not just happening in North America. It's not just happening in Europe. We're doing it everywhere. Oh, that's so cool. I love that so much. What would you say are the obstacles that women in particular face in finding funding for food ventures, let's say? Well, there is a lot. Absolutely. There's a lot of barriers that are facing women when it comes to fundraising. So first and foremost, about half of all the women that we spoke to in our survey reported that they've experienced bias from investors. And of those uh, women, 75% were gender biased. So gender bias is, you know, that's a really complex problem because it can range from everything from 
hey, little girl, you're too young to ever make it on grocery store shelves. You'll never make it. And that's an actual piece of feedback that one of the founders, funded founders, backed founders that we spoke to received all the way to, hey, if I were your husband, I'd tell you to go back into the kitchen, which is a piece of feedback that Miyoko Shinner received <laughs> from, an, from an investor. So, wow. you know, there, there's pieces like that. And those are the more overt, obvious forms of gender bias, right? But then it gets, when you start to peel back the layers, there's also things like you know, Danielle is a great example. You know, Daniela at Kinder, she's been working with trying to get vegan diapers out there. And she's got a startup that is focused specifically on the problems that mothers face. And this is a really big problem that we've had in the vegan space and in this, you know, broader conversation is that there's not been a lot of innovation and funding towards issues that are quote unquote women's issues. So, you know, pregnancy solutions, infant solutions, we really haven't innovated on formula since the 70s. Most children are still using the original crappy things that we created in the 70s for formula because nobody really thought to innovate in that space. And so there's this entire area of focus that investors kind of glaze over because they they don't see the market because the majority of investors are men. The majority of investors are white men still. And so they just miss entire demographics. And that's more of that unconscious bias piece that relates to gender. So women that have pitched ideas like that definitely face completely different feedback from men, for sure. The other barriers that are really significant, of course, are the networking gap. Women are way more likely to face a networking gap than male founders, uh, particularly women of color. If you weren't born a few miles away from Palo Alto, I mean, hell, even if you were born a few miles away from Palo Alto, (laughs) how on earth are you ever going to know a VC? Most people that even have any concept of what a VC is, see it on Shark Tank or, or Dragon's Den, depending on where you're joining from. So if you don't have access to that network, it is extremely mm-hmm. hard to know where to go to raise money. And if you weren't born to parents that had access to that network or have uh, classmates that have access to that network, I mean, it's no surprise that almost 50% of VCs went to two schools. Yeah, there's a lot of inequities there. Would you say that these inequities are like an outgrowth of bro culture of the tech world? Is that what you're kind of angling at with the Silicon Valley? Well, you can't talk about what venture capital looks like today without looking at the tech industry, right? And so the majority of folks in the food tech industry did get a lot of their money from the original tech guys uh, in the Valley. So we kind of are seeing like a 2.0 and 3.0 of the food tech industry now, but a lot of that money that actually fueled that that first growth of, you know, are just and beyond and impossible and Memphis meets. I mean, they all got money in the Valley, all led by men as well, coincidentally. So there's definitely an area that has funded a lot of food and that is coming from an industry that was male dominated. One of the things that really concerns me is that as these companies start to mature, which they really are now, we've, we've seen our first exit with Beyond a year and a half ago. Now Oatly is going to be exiting. Of course, Impossible is, is eyeing an exit too. I think we all know that there's going to be a lot more coming in this next six to 12 months or so. What We need to think about that wealth transfer. And so a lot of wealth is going to be accumulated again to a lot of the folks that were in those original industries and that still look very male dominated. And so if we don't make a conscious effort to start getting that wealth to women founders and women board of directors and women executives, it's going to just look the same as the tech industry. 
That's a really good point. And, you know, most of my background is in nonprofit, but I've recently pivoted to also be in the for-profit realm with Kinder Beauty. And it is interesting to see the reflection of the problems in both the nonprofit funding and in the for-profit funding, because, you know, the nonprofit space within animal rights and in particular farmed animal rights is pretty much a, a few white men. I mean, you know, there is there are a couple exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's what it's historically been. And it, it winds up being a huge problem, obviously, because people wind up funding those who look like themselves, those who have the same background. It's like an unconscious bias, or maybe it's a conscious bias. And obviously it's important to not discriminate against women just because that's the right thing to do. But why do you think it's crucial in particular to the success of the new food movement to actually embrace women, not just, not just focus on let's not discriminate, but focus on let's embrace women. So there's two big points that I'm going to cover. The first one is women buy stuff. You know, women buy stuff. I am sure with your work at Kinder, you've seen the consumer purchasing reports, like 90% of consumer (laughs) purchasing is done by women. So it's really important that you understand your audience and your consumers and who you're selling to, especially considering as of right now, the vegan movement is is largely women, right? It's about 80% or so, um, some studies show, are women in terms of vegans, as well as some of the fastest growing areas of demographics are Black women as well. So women are the people you're selling to. You need to understand how women work to sell to them. So that's the first thing. But the even more important aspect is that women, statistically speaking, make better founders. There is a lot of information that shows that women have higher valuations upon exit. Women are much better with your per dollar invested compared to male founders. They make a lot less money, go a lot farther. We've seen this time and time again. Um, A great example that I like to show is, you know, you can look at Just and what they've been able to build with over $150 million in funding over the last decade or so, and what they've created with Just Egg, and then you can compare it to Zero Egg. Zero Egg, for those that aren't aware, is an Israeli-based, plant-based egg company led by Liran Nimradi. She's an incredible food entrepreneur, and she was able to scale. She was able to, okay, listen to this, develop scale and make it onto American shelves in less than two years with only one round of funding. Wow. Wow. And now just now can can contrast that to the Just Egg, which took nearly 10 years to get out there. Now, Just Egg is an amazing product. Josh, you know, he's, there's no doubt that what he's been able to accomplish is a monumental feat for the movement, but look at what other founders can do too, if they just got a little bit of that same press coverage, if they just got a little bit more name recognition. A lot of folks probably have no idea who Liron is. I can tell you who Liron is because I, I've seen what she's been able to build. And she's, of course, one of the people that we featured at our last summit. So there's a lot of numbers that back why you should back women. The other thing that's really important too to understand is that the barriers that women founders face can virtually be eliminated by having a woman investor in the fund. So there's studies that actually show that women can exit with all of the same rates as their male counterparts, or even better, just by having one single woman present in the fund. That's incredible. That's sort of mind-blowing. At the virtual conference that, that you recently hosted, what stage would you say the businesses were in uh, that were representative of the speakers and the attendees? Was it like established companies? Was it, you know... 
brand new startups? Were there women who attended who just like have an inkling of an idea? I'm just curious because what I'd love to ask you next is how a vegan business goes from the idea stage to reality. So sort of a, a, a two-pronged question here, Jenny, but what kind of women were attending the summit and what were their, what were the stages of their business of their business and how say someone could go from an idea stage to reality with a business? So to answer your first question, it ran the gamut. So we had everything from I've, I'm in ideation stage. I know I want to be a founder one day. I'm still kind of figuring out what that's going to be all the way to, I just raised a series D I've raised you know, $50 million already for my company. So it really did range. I, in general, though, I, the majority of the founders that we had on stage, we had 46 women founders, CEOs, and investors that were featured just as speakers alone. The majority were probably in seed or series A. So for folks that aren't too familiar, you know, basically it, it, it goes seed, series A, B, C, D, there's now even pre-seed rounds as some folks are doing, which is an even smaller round before seed. Uh, but generally speaking, that is an early stage company that's maybe raised a few million bucks and has a product that's out there. Perhaps the product is in a few markets, but it hasn't yet reached that critical mass where it's on every grocery store in America or every grocery store in, in Germany's shelves yet. So those are generally speaking, the majority of the women that we had there. To your second question, How do you go from being an idea to being on store shelves? Well, there's a few different routes. One of the ones that's really interesting right now for us is traditionally speaking, we have always looked at venture capital as a way to grow your business. Venture capital has gotten really, really popular in the last few years, by the way. It wasn't always known that you had to go out and get investment to be able to scale a company. There's a lot of vegan businesses that have done it without any venture capital at all, and they just did it straight up through bootstrapping. I mean, there's a there's some of the world's biggest companies, most well-known brands started that way. Spanx is a great example. Mm. She never she never raised a single dollar from from VCs. She did the entire thing herself through revenue. So that, of course, is is one option. Of course, you can go out and raise venture capital. That's your second option. You should understand that if you're raising venture capital, that means that you are telling someone, hey, I've got a great idea. You should back me. I'm going to give you a piece of it. So there's, there is a trade-off to when you raise that kind of money. And then the last piece that we're increasingly seeing a lot more folks getting into that I think is really interesting is the crowdfunding side of things. So crowdfunding, historically speaking, I think most of us think of Kickstarter or maybe Indiegogo, it's more of a, this is my passion project. And, you know, as a, if you are able to help fund and make this thing happen, I'm going to send you a t-shirt and a copy of the DVD or something like that. But there's new models that are now allowing for crowdfunding to happen where you can actually raise your round of funding. And each of the people that put in money, instead of getting a t-shirt, they actually own a little bit of equity. So there's there's an actual real investment play. So you've got um, iFundWomen is one platform working on it. They were at our summit in December. But the big one that a lot of folks are maybe hearing about now is Republic. So Republic is looking to democratize investing and backstage capital. Arlen Hamilton's fund just recently put a round on there. And so there's a lot of different ways you can make money now. It has changed a lot. In 2021, the options that are out there are much more than they even were in 2019. So those would be the three top that I would say. Mm. 
Very interesting. I interviewed my my friend, Amy Trakinski from Veg Invest, who adores you, by the way. And so she also, from like the perspective of being a, a funder, she gave a lot of insight into what funders are looking for. And I encourage anyone who's listening to this interview and is, is you know, getting their, their wheels turning to also tune into that episode. But Jenny, from your perspective, what would you say funders are looking for? in the venture capital aspect of starting a business? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you're early stage, what early stage funders are are really looking for is who you are, right? So they look at the entrepreneur, the background for this space, in particular for the food tech space, the mission is a huge piece for a lot of funders. People like Amy, you know, they they come from a farm animal background. And so if you are going to a funder that is specifically targeting animal welfare and, and really wants to improve it for mission aligned goals, they'll look at who you are and what is the potential problem that you're trying to solve. For a lot of the vegan funders in particular, since this is a vegan audience, they actually look at how many animals are saved by the product you're proposing. This is a very specific mission-aligned concept, right? So the majority of funders that you go out, regular VCs, they don't care about that. But if you're going for mission-aligned funders, they will actually do those types of calculations. And so a lot of them actually will look at, okay, so what is the proposed product that you are putting out there and how many animals will it displace that otherwise would have been exploited or, or unfortunately slaughtered for the alternative? So you're seeing a lot of people that are interested in things like the chicken, right? The majority of money early on in the space went towards burgers, but like less than 20% of, you know, hamburgers and and things like that are, are even like the meat of choice for Americans. And so now we're seeing a lot of funders that are looking for what are ways that animals are used like a lot, a lot more than some of these other products. And chicken is a great example. The majority of animals that are slaughtered every year are chickens and eggs too. So those are some of the interesting things that that folks look for early on. And of course, you know, do you have a track record of being able to grow a product? Do you have a, have you ever done this before? What's your background? Those types of things. That's what an early stage investor typically looks for. Well, I'm interested in the fact that like the nonprofit model, which I mentioned I have a strong background, it is a very flawed model. And I think it's really cool that these new opportunities are being created, that someone who really just wants to change the world can actually go into for-profit ventures without all of the, you know, red tape uh, and bootstrapping of being in the nonprofit realm. So I think there's a lot more opportunities there. I love that. Nothing gets me more excited than that. And you mentioned at the beginning that you basically had at the summit, like a sort of shark tank element to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think that was one of the coolest parts of the summit. Yeah. So we did a pitch competition. It was a prize-based pitch competition for Pathfinder and we will be doing it again. Uh, so for everybody that's listening, you guys are getting like the very first sneak peek and, and you're getting the hook there. So we will bring the pitch competition back this year. And essentially what we did is we put an open call out for women to apply with any sort of plant-based innovation that they wanted to propose that would, as I said, be displacing what otherwise would be animals in the supply chain. And we reached over 800 women across 31 countries. So there is a lot of ideas out there. They ranged from, I have an idea for a company and I haven't even created it yet, all the way to, here's my fully backed funded company. Like, take a take a look at what we're doing. We've already raised 
$10 million. So it did run the gamut. But in general, we were looking for more early stage ideas so that we could help get more attention to the founders. So we were looking for founders that were probably more in that seed stage. Our founders that we ended up getting, that our five finalists that went live and pitched in front of our VCs were really, really interesting because first off, they came, they came from five different countries. So they were from all across the world and they had five completely different products. I, I can tell you a little bit more about the, the top five that we had and who ended up winning if you'd like. I'd love it. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Okay, so first we had Astrid, who is the founder of How Food over in China. So she came on live from Shanghai and told us about this incredible product that she's launching based out of peanut protein. And it is a chicken analog in China because in China, there's a massive, massive market for fried chicken. Fried chicken is just adored. For anyone that's been across Asia, you'd know that KFC is like one of the biggest fast food companies across the entire continent there, especially in China. So, you know, to to all of us over here in the US, we thought at first, like, you're going to use peanuts? How on earth are you going to use peanuts? Everybody on earth is allergic to peanuts. You can't even put a peanut within like 100 miles of a school in America. <laughs> As it turns out, interestingly enough, in the Asian market, peanut allergies are almost non-existent. They don't face the same kinds of, of barriers when it comes to allergens as we do over in North America. So this is the reason I tell you this is because every market is very different. Every market is not where we're at in America and every consumer is very different. So that was a really interesting novel approach that she was taking. We had Kanoko Labs uh, out of Berlin, Germany. Isabella pitched that and Kanoko Labs is working on mycelium-based steak so really exciting stuff that we're, we're really just kind of on the cutting edge of mycelium, of course, for folks that are not familiar, you know, this is using fungi, this is mushrooms, we are able to use technology to make mushrooms into whole cut steaks and fillets. So that's what she's working on over there. We also had uh, Courtney who pitched from whipped urban dessert labs, the world's first, I believe, oat milk based soft serve ice cream. Hmm delicious out of New York City. Amazing. Uh, I mean, the product is just incredible. Oat milk, I think, is having a moment, of course, with the Oatly IPO that's coming. Oats are just like on the top of everyone's mind. So it's a no-brainer for soft serve. And then we had Save to Seafood that Aki pitched out of Vancouver, British Columbia, and they are doing a vegan salmon product. She has a really great story because the salmon industry is a huge, huge industry up in the West Coast of Canada for anyone that's not familiar. And so she wants to find a way to keep that culture alive, but transition it to a plant-based product in a way that's more sustainable. Because for as, as folks probably are aware, the commercial fishing practices, particularly around salmon, are becoming extremely destructive to ocean wildlife. And then our winner was um, Renana Krebs who had alga life, which is a algae-based dye and textiles company. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she's creating... This is just wild. To paint a picture for for you all, she spent 15 years working in the fashion industry in Berlin. And this company is based out of Israel. She, She founded it with her father. And she saw what it looks like to create fashion, right? So fast fashion and the way that they do dyes, the chemicals they use, the things they use in tanneries for leather are just horrifyingly bad for the environment, completely unsustainable, and really toxic to human health, a lot of them as well. Uh, unfortunately, there's some massive like human rights issues attached to a lot of like the fashion production that's out there. 10% of all carbon emissions actually comes from fashion alone. 
And so she's creating an algae-based sustainable solution to do the same high quality dyes and, and create those same fashion products for folks through a much cleaner, much more sustainable method. And in addition to that, she also is working on new textiles and materials, a big one being wool. Wool is something we haven't cracked yet in the plant-based space. We, this is, it's one of the, it's one of the white whales is how do we replace wool? There is no real wool alternative out there. Not one that's been scaled to the same quality. And it unfortunately is one of the more hidden animal exploitation practices. I think, I, I think a lot of people are still under the misconception that, you know, sheep grow the, they grow this hair and we need to shear them and everybody's happy and nothing bad happens to the sheep. And it's a great industry. But as, as we all know, uh, in the animal space, that is just not the case. And so wool is a big opportunity for folks to create a plant-based option. Mm. Wow. That's all really inspiring. I would love to get those people on our headhouse too. I'm like taking notes here. Happy to. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got, I have so many incredible women founders. I am just, I am on the circuit telling everybody about what every woman is doing and I will get them out on as many platforms as I can. Uh, but you, I, I mean, wow, you're such a cheerleader. You're like a manager, an agent, a organizer. Uh, I, like you're so many, you wear so many different hats. So okay, let's talk about that for a minute. Like where did all of this come from? What were you doing before? And, and, and how did you turn this idea into a reality? So I've built my career in the tech industry. As you can probably tell from some of my references to the Valley, I've, I've spent the last decade working with some of the world's biggest tech companies. And I'll be honest, in the majority of the conversations that I've had, especially early on in my career, I'm the only woman in the room. It is very, very apparent that bro culture that, that you mentioned, I've experienced that through a lot of my career. Also ageism too. You know, I'm typically the youngest in the room. I'm typically the only woman in the room. And it left an impression on me. You know, I'm not from California. I grew up in a really tiny town in Canada. And I don't I don't have connections to this industry. I don't have I didn't come through a pedigree. I didn't go to Stanford or anything like that. And so I've experienced a networking gap myself. I've experienced all those types of barriers that if you just like aren't born into that situation, it's really, really hard for you to break into an industry, even harder for you to, to get into the, the rooms that you need to, especially if you're getting investment and things like that. So having experienced that firsthand, when I became vegan six years ago, I started increasingly getting interested in the food tech space. And so I started doing programming with folks in the food tech space about three years ago or so. We were bringing together some of the world's biggest tech CEOs to meet with some of the world's emerging food tech CEOs. And you know what I really wanted to do is position food tech as the next big tech industry. I, I think that we need to mainstream the opportunity more. That changed a lot in the last year. But back in 2018, when I started these conversations, it was still seen as niche. It was still seen as like, it's just food. Like, what's, you know, why should tech people see this as an opportunity to make money or to innovate? Or why is this more important than the stuff that we're doing over at? You know, at the time it was like Facebook and Google and things like that. I will say public sentiment changed pretty quickly on some of those companies. Um, but, you know, with that being said, after, after doing some of that programming, I realized that these were rooms with all men as well. And it was just really starting to look like, okay, we're on the forefront of a brand new industry and it looks just like the last one. So I just, I decided, you know what, if we are not being given a platform for women to get funding, if we're not being given a platform for women to get coverage, I'm just going to create one. I'm just going to do it myself because if, if, if we don't, 
what's going to happen is we're going to default to the status quo. That's what happens, right? We have a dominant group that that has received the majority of funding. We have a dominant group that that has a lot of those connections and, and has a lot of those opportunities. They're going to have a lot more of them with these more with these IPOs, as I mentioned. And so if we do not take the opportunity to course correct and really drive folks to to include more women into the funding, to include uh, more women of color in particular, only 0.54% of all investment last year went towards women of color, 2.5% to women altogether. So it's like shockingly low. It is nowhere even close to the realm of equal. It's going to take years for us to get there. But if we don't turn the conversation towards that direction now, it's not going to turn itself. And it's just going to continue on the way of every industry before them. So that is my goal, is to course correct and build a more diverse, a more equitable, and let's be honest, like a more inclusive system for, for women founders, for women investors, for women advocates that just really want to see that their dollar go towards women that look like them. I believe that everybody has the right to fund people from their own community, especially as we're seeing so many uh, Black vegans entering the community. We need to make sure that we're getting funding to these Black founders, and we just have not done a good job of that so far. Yeah, 100%. Uh, There's a lot of inspiration there. There's a lot of hope there, and there's a lot of work ahead of us with it, I think. But you're starting a movement, you know, unto itself. And I know you mentioned at the beginning that you somehow were able to do an in-person event at the beginning of 2020. The beginning of 2020 doesn't even make sense to me when I think of it, like what I was doing then. I remember doing a book reading at the beginning of 2020 and I see photos and I'm like, we were, there were too many of us. Like COVID existed. We're, <laughs> why were we all in the crowd? But, uh, the before time. The before yeah, time. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> But then you pivoted because you had to. And one of the things that I was very impressed with was the way that you pivoted. And it it felt like a really successful event. So can you just tell us a little bit about how your virtual event took shape and like what you're super proud of with the way it went down and and maybe something you learned? Yeah. So... I mean, first off, I'd never done a virtual event in my entire life when I pivoted BWS to virtual events. And, you know, we, the very first two people that I called in March when I said, all right, I'm going to try to do an online BWS event. We did some smaller ones every month or so. Actually, it was every week or so for the beginning of the pandemic before launching a virtual conference. We wanted to kind of dip our toe in the water. And the two calls that I made, which sounds so funny now, are... Miyoko Shinner, of course, who's one of our, our closest allies and, and advisors. But the other one was Tabitha Brown, because Tab and I had chatted and she was not able to make our first Vegan Women Summit in February because she had a Sacramento obligation to go to. And so I said, all right, Tab, like, let's make sure that we do the first virtual event with you. And she goes, yeah, sure, let's do it. And so it just sounds, you know, speaking of like, wow, it seems like forever ago, this was this was March of 2020 before things changed for Tab as well. So when we did that first event, we had hundreds of women that joined and we had an inspirational conversation. I thought there's no way women are going to want to sit in front of their computers for an hour and watch people speak. It's not the same as being there in person. But I realized pretty quickly, yeah, it's not the same as being in person. But these women that are talking right now in our chat are connecting all across the world. And we weren't able to do that in a room in San Francisco because there's there's obvious barriers that are posed by an in-person gathering that are not posed by a virtual event. And that's what really got me thinking. What if we take a conference virtual, 
I think that we can reach women all over. I think that we can reach women of all socioeconomic backgrounds, of all geographic backgrounds, and we can actually create a more accessible opportunity and a bigger community. And so that was my hypothesis and why I wanted to take Pathfinder virtual. And I was just blown away by how many women we reach from all over. So the thing that I'm most proud of is that I can truly say we've created a global community and we've created a community that's accessible because every other conference in this space, they cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars to attend, sometimes more, sometimes in the thousands to attend anything food tech where you hear from any of these CEOs and founders, right? So the costs are prohibitive alone, but also just like the geographic limitations, knowing that if 50% of our founders have kids at home, like how on earth are they going to fly to San Francisco or New York for these types of events? And so that's the thing that I'm the most excited about is that we were able to reach women and meet them where they were at in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do if we weren't in a virtual setting. We also are able to reach women all over the world. So we have so many women that join from places like Manila or Mumbai. And you know, with the currency conversion, those costs would have just made that not even remotely within the realm of possibility. So that's, I think, the the best thing that came out of the summit. In terms of the things that I've learned, I do think that there is a place in the future for virtual events to continue post-pandemic. But I've also learned what doesn't work in a virtual setting. And there is something powerful about in-person conferences. So I'm really excited. The future of BWS is certainly hybrid. So we've got, I mean, I will talk to you a little bit later about what we've got in store, but but we've got in-person events that I think are going to be a mainstay for us as well as virtual events. What I'm excited about the most is actually seeing if we can create hybrid experiences so that there's an option to participate both in person as well as online so we can keep that global community with us and also find the way to have those powerful conversations in person, especially with the Vegan Women Summit flagship conference, which is a little bit less business focused, but more women empowerment focused. Those kinds of conversations, we, we talked about some really deep things, imposter syndrome, of scarcity and abundancy mindset, of, of women tearing down other women. How do we stop that? Like Those are the types of conversations that we had in person. I don't think they'll feel the same virtually. So some aspects of this movement and what we're building in the community, I want to put in person and some aspects like the business opportunities, I think we can keep virtual. Oh, that's super cool. I love the hybrid idea. And and what do you have in store? You mentioned you're teasing us now, but I want to know like what's next for you. So we've got some exciting programming for 2021. So some folks may have participated in our first VWS Connect event. So we launched VWS Connect last month, which is the world's first virtual job networking series dedicated to mission-based employers. So we connected, this is amazing. We connected with over 1,200 registered attendees joining on February uh, 23rd. So this was last month with over a dozen mission aligned employers. So we're literally taking a job fair online so that you can find out anywhere you are in the entire world about how you can join a mission-based employer. So everyone from Miyoko's and Rebellious Foods to ProVeg or the Humane League, Mercy for Animals. We had Supermeat. We had some cell-based employers that joined as well. We'll be doing that on a quarterly basis. So our next one's going to be at the end of May. So if you are an employer that's looking to really recruit from our community, we have an incredibly diverse community of women. 60% of our women identify as women of color, 85% of a bachelor's degree or higher. So this is a very highly educated, diverse group of professionals. If you want to make sure that you're building an inclusive workforce, we're going to give you that opportunity. 
because we know that leadership is so important. Representation is so important. We need to get more women in executive roles. We need to get more women in senior management roles. We need to get them in middle management roles. They need to be present at all levels in these new companies. So we're trying to really put our foot down in creating that pipeline. So both founders with Pathfinder, which we'll be bringing back as well later in the year, as well as opportunities for employment. So that is a few of the things that we have for this year. And of course, the Vegan Women's Summit flagship conference will be coming back. I can't tell you quite when yet. Uh, I think that there's a little bit that needs to be worked out in terms of COVID and us getting out of this pandemic still. But I, I got some really exciting plans for when we bring back the flagship summit and the 250 women in a room is going to look like a drop in the bucket compared to like what we're doing next. Ooh, that's so cool. Well, how can people find out more about your next steps and support your efforts and attend some of these in-person and virtual gatherings? So we are on veganwomensummit.com. So you can go to veganwomensummit.com to find out all of the things that we are up to uh, on a daily basis, but you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about all the events and, and opportunities you have with the community. So that's veganwomensummit.com slash newsletter. And we are on pretty much every single platform, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can look up Vegan Women's Summit, Twitter. You can look up Veg Women's Summit. That one's always a little annoying because Vegan Women's Summit was too long for the character count for Twitter. Um, so Veg Women's Summit on Twitter. But yeah, we are very, very active on all of our platforms. We have a Women Founder Wednesday that goes out, went out this morning, actually, as we're recording, where we feature between a dozen and upwards of 16 different women founders every single week that are working at the future of food, fashion, beauty, science, and technology. So there's some really cool things in there. A lot of kinder uh, folks actually get featured in there, especially in our future of beauty um, area, because there's so many amazing vegan beauty creators right now. Yeah, there sure are. Well, that's very exciting, Jenny. I hope that you stay on with me because I have a few more questions for our flock bonus content. But for now, thank you so much. This was eye-opening and there's just so many things I'm looking forward to in everything you talked about. And I just really appreciate the fact that you're, you're putting all of this in one spot and you're making it really easy for everyone to get involved. So thanks so much for all you do to change the world for animals and for joining us today on our hen house. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is nuts. I mean, just completely nuts. All right, it's from meetingplace.com. It's a column by Gregory Bloom. The title of this particular article is Our Culture's Changing Attitudes About Animal Slaughter. I'm just going to read this first paragraph or part of it. Slaughtering animals is a messy, bloody business, but that reality is nothing new. With Passover starting this weekend and Easter Sunday next week, for practicing Orthodox Jews and Christians, the blood sacrifices offered in the Old Testament are prominent in the thoughts of many this time of year. 
like, what? <laughs> do you, like, do most people celebrate Passover and, and Easter by thinking about blood sacrifice? I don't, I don't know about that. But he is, Gregory is. He's often in a meat plant, he, he points out, and there's blood everywhere. There's blood on the floor. There's blood on the tables, aprons, walls, gloves. There's blood all over the place. It's a messy business, and it makes some people squeamish. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that surprising? It's blood. Goes on to say, our rapidly changing culture seems to have an increasingly difficult time psychologically processing blood on the floor as a means to a necessary end. Having healthy, nutritious protein for food requires it. Why is this reality increasingly tough for our culture to accept? Well, for one thing, because it's not necessary. <laughs> like, yeah, when things are necessary, you put up with the negatives. It ain't anymore. But his list is this, and it's a pretty good list. Well, first he points out that less than 1.5% of Americans are actively involved in firsthand food production, which, you know, some people think is a good thing, but whatever. Also, two, this is his second reason. Many plant-based companies strategically market for ending the raising of food animals, partly based on an emotional appeal against eating meat. That's, he's given us credit, or he's given anyway, beyond me credit, <laughs> maybe not me personally. Don't you like that emotional appeal? He uses that term a lot, emotional, not compassionate, not ethical, not anything to do with what's right and what's wrong. It's just like emotional kind of thing they used to say about women. Actually, they do still say it about women. His third reason is it's increasingly intolerable for those of younger generations to think of animals slaughtered for consumption when there are more emotionally palatable options. Uh, yeah, we don't have to do it anymore. So emotionally, <laughs> we feel better about eating the other stuff. Oh, or the young people do. I, you know, the young people in me. The alarm over global warming has many people convinced that animal agriculture is harmful to the environment, etc., etc. Uh, yeah, but that doesn't really have anything to do with being disgusted by blood on the floor, does it? All right, he goes on to the, with this religious thing. This is the part that's just really weird because he really thinks that, uh, you know, it's you don't see this problem everywhere in the world. Uh, huge cities such as Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Mexico City, and most South American cities don't seem to have this anti-meat sentiment in their cultures. Well, just wait, Gregory, just wait. And this is the reason. I do see a strong correlation between this anti-meat sentiment and the growing secularization of Western nations, the erosion of Judeo-Christian values that helped form and preserve our nation is also having a strongly negative effect, even on the meat industry. So somehow, Judeo-Christianity is all about blood sacrifice. That's, <laughs> that's news to me. And that is having an effect on the meat industry because we're not religious anymore. Like, what? <laughs> what? Uh, there are many people who practice those religions who would find who would be a little surprised to find out that blood sacrifice, with Christianity specifically referring to Jesus Christ, you know, so apparently he thinks of that as a kind of human sacrifice too. This guy is weird, really weird. All right, another article from meetingplace.com, meat outs and ins. Again, we are talking about the meat out uh, from, you know, as he calls it, this is by Mac Graves and uh, from the Meet Your Markets column. Get it? Meet your markets. And um, he's talking about Farm Animal Rights Movement Farm and the meat out campaign that they began. And everybody, that's all they've been talking about. If you've been listening to the podcast, 
the past few weeks. They cannot handle that in Colorado, the governor declared a, a meat out day. And he, he points out the alternatives, various states such as Nebraska, the only one I heard about is Nebraska, proclaiming meat in days. He's just saying that's, that's really not going to be enough. And proclamations like policies, that's the governor of Colorado, remind me of the meatless Mondays various states and school districts have proclaimed, attempting to restrict students from choosing what to eat by shaming them into not eating meat under a nutrition guise or a pseudo-environmental help, etc. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> when politicians start to dictate what we can and cannot consume, what's next? All right, just wait for this. No beer at Sunday's baseball game or cannabis at the family picnic. <laughs> I guess he lives in California. I don't know. I don't know. Like, like I thought cannabis mostly was something that politicians were starting to dict or, or were already dictating what we can and cannot consume. At least where I live, it is. Maybe he's trying to get those, you know, those people who are upset by that on board saying, yeah, they don't let us, they don't let us uh, have cannabis like, and now they're going to take meat away. I don't know. I don't know. It is interesting because he believes that farm's mission is to put them out of business. You know, that's true. And he wants their meet in messages. He admits that this year they didn't pull it off, but next year he wants to focus on next year and, and the meet in messages. And he wants them to be as compelling and uh, one of the one of the one of his problems is is that the information on the environment is really not <laughs> compelling. So he says we cannot be deterred by those who trot out the environmental destruction shibboleth either. We must show meats environmental improvement programs and compare them to other greenhouse gas contributors that are far more deleterious. And I was reading this, I was like, well, there's things that are worse, so that means yours isn't bad. But his in his very next paragraph, he goes on to say, however, this too is a slippery slope for us as we cannot be advocating for just a little less greenhouse gas than others. No, we must advocate for dramatic reductions in cattle productions, greenhouse gas emissions. We must be doing our damnedest, oh, darndest, to help the environment not just nibble at the edges of its greenhouse gas caused destruction. Yeah, I guess this is the, the source of all these bullshit pseudo solutions that they've been trotting out, like um, forcing cows to eat seaweed, which is supposed to reduce the methane. You know, you can't fix it. Now, you're not going to figure this out by next year because it's not figure outable. It's a disaster. Face it, you're in a disaster industry and it's not going to get fixed. All right, finally, finally, where worlds converge, also from Meeting Place. This is a column by Tom Johnston. This is so interesting. And if this isn't rising anxiety, he starts out by talking about Reading headlines out of India describing people being jailed or even killed for eating meat. And I was like, wow, I didn't hear about that. And I looked and he's talking about like every once in a while there is, you know, some Hindu protest about specifically, of course, about cows. Uh, so I like <laughs> thought there was some big thing that had happened in India. No, don't don't worry. But he is sh shudders and thinks how grateful he is for, quote, living in a country where I can have my meat and eat it freely, too. I also can peacefully have my veggies. I just don't like them very much. All right. So he's sitting, he's setting this up as, you know, like, really, I love my meat. And in some places, people can be killed for, for eating meat. And that's just awful. And, and here in the U.S., well, I'll, I'll just quote, the meat-veggie relationship here in the U.S. is, especially when compared to some parts of India, far more harmonious. But it, likewise, is both complex and an opportunity worth exploring. All right. Where are we going here, Tom? 
We see that in the context of the meat industry, and we see that within our own publishing company, which also seeks to expand its portfolio. So all of this harsh rhetoric in the beginning is actually easing people into the fact that the, the company that produces Meeting Place is now publishing a whole magazine called Alt Meat as a separate brand about the alternative meat industry. Well, if this isn't rising anxieties and the writing on the wall, I don't know what is. And he points out somebody's trying to ease people into it. Don't see us as the enemy now. We're on your side, but we're also on their side. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he goes on to say, exploding population growth projected over the next 30 years will require far more than just protein derived from animals. Like the aforementioned meat industry titans, who he had been talking about Tyson, Cargill, and Maple Leaf Foods putting money into into alt meat, what he's calling it. All of a sudden, they're calling it something a little uh, a little less hostile than than lab grown meat. All right, our little publishing company. Oh, poor little you. Sees an opportunity to get in on the ground floor and grow with the demand for all proteins, including the emulators. Wow, they're really worried about losing their their core audience, but. They see the writing on the wall. I see the writing on the wall. Anxieties are rising out there. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.